Argument number eight. Love for people is the overflow of expansion of joy in God. Now, here's, here's why we're going to linger on this for a few minutes. In the previous session, we talked about how I was excited in the early days of my discoveries about vertical Christian hedonism. Being satisfied in God glorifies God because my soul is deeply satisfied in Him. When He sees that, He's made much of and The vertical is working. And I thought, is this going to have any effect on my life in relation to other people? Or am I just going to go become like a Buddha, cross-legged, sitting under a tree, experiencing nirvana? Or is that Hinduism? I don't know. Um, just experiencing uh, me and God or nothingness and the world can go to hell. But we're really happy. That's scary. And there are a lot of churches that feel that way, I suppose. We just, we like each other so much. and We got our vertical worship going and we're surrounded by pagans that are perishing and make any difference. Well, if that's what happens, then you can just throw Christian hedonism away. Just throw it away. If you go to church and that church says we're Christian hedonists and they don't do evangelism, they don't care for the suffering of the world, they say, but they're real. You will know them by their what? Fruits. And the fruit very largely is, I mean, what's the first one mentioned in Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? All right, so here we are. This has got to be in the service of love or it's just not real. Love has to work better in Christian hedonism than it does anywhere else, or you better check in another church, another theology. So here is a text that has been hugely helpful for me in understanding how Paul understands love and where it comes from. He's writing to the Corinthians. Now, that's southern Greece, and he wants to raise money in Corinth to give to the poor in Jerusalem. That's the whole thing he's doing over and over again as he moves around from church to church. He's collecting money because there's problems in Jerusalem and he is trying to do it in the most upstanding way so that he's not distrusted and he's trying to motivate the Corinthians to be very generous, to give when he gets there and take it to Jerusalem to help the poor. And to do that, he uses the Macedonians. Now, that's the folks who live in northern Greece, up around uh, Philippi, as an example of what happened in their generosity. That's what's going on here. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. So we're going to tell the Corinthians about what happened in Macedonia. And here's what happened. In a great... Let's just go. The grace of God has been given. That's the first thing. That's number one. To the churches of Macedonia. And in a great ordeal of affliction. So there's the second thing to take note of. Their abundance of joy. That's the third thing to take note of. And their deep poverty. That's the fourth thing to take note of overflowed in a wealth of liberality or generosity. That's the fifth thing to take note of. Now, stop. That's amazing. 
the reason I quoted the rest of this is just to get down here to verse 8. I am not speaking this as a command to the Corinthians, but as proving through the earnestness of others, namely these folks right here, the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, the sincerity of your love also. Ah, 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 look at that. This is love. Now I know what love looks like to Paul and where it comes from if I analyze this. Because he just said, I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm not trying to put down my apostolic authority on you. I'm trying to stir you up so this comes from your heart and it will be love. Also, meaning that was love. So what is it? What is love? Love is when the grace of God is given. He preached the gospel. And they got saved. Their, their sins were forgiven. Heaven was opened. Guilt was taken away. The wrath of God is removed. They're planted in grace. They're heading for glory. This is awesome. I hope you feel it's awesome. To be forgiven by God, accepted by God, loved by God, destined for glory by God, is grace beyond imagining. So that happened. Grace came down. And afflictions came up. Grace doesn't make affliction go away. It increases them. You want to be a Christian? Count the cost. You're going to have more trouble than you did before. Not less, more. Not the same kind. You won't get drunk as often. Crash your car that way. Lose your job that way. But you, you might get fired for being a Christian. So would you rather get fired for being a Christian or get fired because you're drunk all the time? Things don't necessarily improve. So for them it didn't. There was this ordeal of affliction as the grace came down. But as the afflictions came up, there was abundance of joy, which means this joy right here was not rooted in circumstances. Like, i got to have things going well for me or I can't be happy. Well, you forget Christianity then. Things are not going to go well. They never have. Through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they mistreat those of his own household? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. There's no promise that things go well for Christians. It's just the opposite. Things go badly through many afflictions. We must enter the kingdom. So their joy is abounding. It isn't joy based in circumstance nor in prosperity. Their poverty has remained. This is not a prosperity gospel text. It's the opposite. And what happens? This joy, in spite of affliction and poverty, this joy overflows. What's the subject of this verb right here? Somebody tell me. Some of you grammarians tell me. What's the subject of this word right here? What? Joy. Their abundance of joy. Well, maybe, maybe it's abundance, technically. And this is a prepositional phrase. But it's abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed. So poverty is overflowing and joy is overflowing. Very strange way to talk. Poverty is overflowing and generosity and joy. Joyful poverty 
is overflowing in a wealth of generosity. Now, here's my conclusion. Where does love come from in the Christian life? That's love. Being radically liberal. I mean, listen to how liberal they are. I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. They begged. Paul took an offering, and when they were done, they said, Oh, would you please take another offering from us? That's what that says. Begging us. For the favor, the grace of participating in the support of the saints. That's crazy. Christians are gloriously crazy people. In the midst of a recession, budgets should go up at the church. I tried to argue this at the staff meeting anyway. <laughs> With a teeny bit of success. So we will have some challenges for you this year if you're a Bethlehem person. This text says recessions overflow in liberality. That's what it says. Recessions overflow in liberality because love is rooted in joy in God. Joy is overflow. So my definition of love is that jo love is the overflow of joy in God. Second Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do just as his purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Now, if the Lord loves a cheerful giver, this is, this is chapter 9, this was chapter 8. He's spending two chapters on this issue. Two chapters to try to get them to be generous, lovingly generous. And his arguments are all hedonistic. God loves a cheerful giver. Well, how does he feel about a non-cheerful giver? It doesn't say, but it's not encouraging. Right? God loves a cheerful giver. So when I stand in front of you on, at this campus or wherever, and, and I want to say something encouraging about giving, I'm going to say, if your heart isn't in your giving, keep it! God doesn't want it, I don't want it. Because what pleases the Lord is cheerful giving. He doesn't want the other kind. Now, I will pray for you. Let <laughs> your heart change. Otherwise, we're going to go out of business, you know. Can't do church without money. But I, I never felt like saying that to people takes us backward. Like if, if, if your heart is not excited about this ministry, you need to find a place where your heart and your pocketbook can be excited. Because if you're begrudging tithing, God is not excited about that. Which means, all right, let's get this now. Translate this. In, let's put this provocatively. If you say emotions don't matter, what matters is the obedience of tithing. Writing the check is what matters, then you are saying you should be indifferent to what pleases God. 
and to be indifferent to what pleases God is the definition of sin. Therefore, you're sinning if you're not pursuing pleasure in giving. So get your checkbook in your pocket and, and some nice offertory is happening and you're sitting eight rows back and you've got a minute to get ready and you don't want to give. It would be less than ideal to say, doesn't matter whether I want to or not, I should, I will. Far better is to say, God, I'm so sorry that my heart is so disinclined to let my money go for the sake of your kingdom. I'm so sorry. I repent of my lack of cheer in this giving. And I ask, Lord, that you would restore to me the joy of generosity because of how much grace you have given me and how my sins are forgiven and how you provide all my needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the proper response to the lack of joy. Now, whether you write the check at that moment is neither here nor there, in my judgment. I think you can be a non-hypocrite at that moment by writing the check. But if you write the check without any respect to your heart, I don't think the Lord is pleased. Same thing with pastors. First Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but eagerness. This is like God loves a cheerful pastor. Right? Shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, not for money. So if you're a pastor, if I'm a pastor... And I say, I hate this ministry, but it's my job. I make a living at it, and um, I feel compelled by duty to do it. But I'm not eager for it. I'm disobeying First Peter 5, 2, and I'm producing a sick church, as this verse implies. Obey your leaders. Now, it sounds like it's talking to you, lay people, but really, look. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. He's talking about pastors. As those who will give an account. Now, it tells you to do something. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, not with this kind of compulsion and for money. Not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, think that one through with me. I am supposed to love you as a pastor, which means I should want and I should pursue in everything I do your greatest good, whatever it costs me. And this text says it would be unprofitable for you if I do my work with grief and not joy. Which means, if I would love you, I must pursue my joy in ministry. 
if I become indifferent to whether I am happy in the ministry. I become indifferent to your profit, your good. How many people go just the opposite? They say, <laughs> I was doing a seminar one time, I won't name the person, because you all know her, him, him or her. <laughs> there are only a few hers that you all know. It. Um, and, and we love each other so much, and we were doing the seminar together, and uh, she said, I don't like your emphasis on pursuing your happiness. I think you should pursue obedience. And I said, that's like saying we should pursue fruit, not apples. Because what is obedience? Obedience is doing what God says to do. Well, what does God say to do? He says, serve the Lord with what? Gladness. So I'm going to be indifferent to that, and you'll call me obedient? God says, do the ministry with gladness. And you tell me to choose obedience over that? How can I? That is obedience. See the problem? So that, that effort to say, pastors should strive for obedient ministry. Do what the Lord says to do in ministry. That's true. That's absolutely true. One of the things he says to do is... Don't do the ministry with grief. Do it with joy because you're going to make a sick church if you don't. It will be profitable for your people if you love the ministry. Which means if I get into a season, and these come, a slump of discouragement and emotional flatness. And I don't even want to show up. My job at that point is not gut it out. And God will be pleased. The point is, get on your face before the living God over his word and cry out to him to restore your joy. Ask the church for a leave if you have to. Get away. Fight this thing until you get victory over these horrible feelings of hatred for ministry and dis indifferent to people. P pastors can get to the point where they can't stand their people. They get beat up so much by so many that to preach is a horrible experience. Just to stand before people. I've never been there. I, I've been so well treated by this church. But oh, I talked to so many pastors. I was dealing in an email just the last two days with a very, very difficult situation. Maybe that's enough on love. I got lots more text, don't I? But I think if I keep going on that, um, we'll take too long. Let me just look. Maybe one more. That one right there. In everything, he's talking to the elders now. He's talking to the pastors. In, in Miletus, these are the Ephesian elders. He will never see them again, probably. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, here's the controversial word in this text. The controversial word is remember. 
You know why that is? Because T.W. Manton yesterday, or in the previous session, whichever it was, said when Jesus argued, have poor people over for dinner because they can't reward you, you will be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. T.W. Manton said, the reward is there, but you don't have them over for the reward, otherwise you're living in the old selfish way. Now, if that were true, what this text would have to say is something like this. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and forget the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because if you remember them, they're going to function. And the way they function is to encourage you that blessedness is coming when you give. That's crazy. <laughs> You shouldn't forget this. That's the opposite of what he's saying. So, here's, here's the way this verse works in the ministry and ought to work. It's 8 o'clock. I'm playing maybe 7.30. Okay? I'm playing with my kids when I had little kids. I play with Talitha now. We read. We watch something on the Internet or whatever. So, I'm, it's playtime. I've always had playtime with my kids. And you get a call. And you've put in a long day, maybe many days. You are just beat. And, and this person, Ethel, is in the hospital. Serious heart situation. Could you come, Pastor? Inside you think, there are other pastors. I'm having playtime. Which is not a good thing to say. I'll, I'll be right there. You hang up the phone. Sorry. Maybe tomorrow night. Gotta go. You're on your way. And on your way, your heart's not in this. This is not something you want to do. And you're ticked that you had to leave your little girl again. And that they call somebody else. And this is a terrible mood to be in when a person might be dying in the next half hour. And you're going to usher them into eternity. Terrible, terrible attitude to have. What should you do? In the car, in the elevator, what should you do? And the answer is, you do this. That's why Jesus said it. He said, he's, he's whispering down in my car, remember something, John. Remember something. What? Remember that when you get there and you start to pour out what little life is left in you, it's going to be blessed. It's going to be blessed. You are going to be blessed. I will see to it that it comes crashing back on you with blessing. That's what you should remember. Not forget. Remember. This is hedonism. This is the way hedonism works. It's the way Jesus said to do it. So you're riding in the elevator. It's always fourth floor, right? Fourth floor. That's where the serious heart situation is. And, and you're up in the elevator. God, come. Please come. I gotta have life here. I gotta give. I gotta be there. I gotta have joy to transfer to a person who might meet you any minute. You open the door. It hasn't risen in your heart yet. I mean, I'm telling you a real story. Right? It hasn't written in your heart, risen in your heart yet. You're still operating on duty pilot. 
It's, just, it's okay to do. It's just not good. Not the best thing. You open the door. She's lying there. Eyes are closed. Tubes everywhere. You don't know if she's conscious. And you walk over and you put your hand on her arm. And she opens her up. Now, I called her Ethel because she's older. That's not a real common name among young kids today. Because older people have a certain way about them. And this is what she says. She, she opens her eyes and she sees it's me. And she's, oh, pastor, you didn't need to come. You're so busy. You're so busy. Now, the absolutely wrong thing to say at that time was, I know, and I didn't want to come. I don't want to be here. I'd rather be at home with Talitha. It's really ticked right now that David Livingston didn't get called. Because she would feel horrible if you said that. What, what should you say? And this is the same thing I said before. You should say, the Lord showed me, Ethel, on the way here, that for me to take the time to come to you and to pray over you and to share my hope and my faith with you and to give you a word from the Lord will be a profound blessing to me. And I'm eager to have that blessing. That's this text. I don't think Ethel would say, you're selfish. She would say, that's what you've taught us. That's right. We're going to share a blessing here. You're going to get a lot of blessing by just giving to me. So go ahead. Go ahead. Make your day. <laughs> Pray and share the word with me and tell me about heaven. And... I, in other words, some of the matter... I really believe that love is the fruit of Christian hedonism. If I didn't believe it, I could not go this direction. Not that I'm an ideal lover, okay? Because I'm not an ideal enjoyer of God. I believe if this, if this imperfect pastor were more fully contented in Christ, I would be a more caring husband and a more caring father and a more caring and tender Pastor, it's my battle at the vertical level that causes my battle at the horizontal level to rise and fall. So I'm basically arguing that the way to fight the fight of unlove is at the vertical level of delighting more in Christ and all that he is for us. That's the argument from love. Argument number nine. Pride and self-pity are overcome by the pursuit of joy in God. Remember what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing that it is biblical to say that it's your duty always to pursue joy in God and that God is most glorified when you do that. I have had numerous people over the years hear me unpack the first end of Christian hedonism, namely, don't ever deny your desire for joy, glut it on God and glut it on loving people and have them say, I just sound so self-centered. It just sounds so kind of proud. 
my joy. I'm going to pursue my joy. And so the issue of pride is real important. How do you fight pride in your life? And I'm arguing Christian hedonism is a mighty weapon against pride and its flip side, self-pity. Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples in Mark 10, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it will be to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, nobody. Well, he said, with people, it is impossible. Camels can't get through the eye of a needle. This is not some gate in the wall of Jerusalem where camels get on their knees. This is in the eye of a needle. They can't. It is impossible. Impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, all right now, this is what I'm after. I'm after Peter's attitude. Peter began to say to him, behold, now what tone of voice should I use here? How do you think Peter sounded? Peter began to say to him, behold, we left everything and followed you. We left everything. We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus, now what's his tone of voice? Jesus didn't like what Peter just said. I mean, why not? I mean, we left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, what's this self-sacrifice stuff? Maybe he didn't sound like that. But you check it out. Truly, I say to you, Peter, no one has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now and in the present age, in the present age, houses and farms along, oops, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, little side effects of the medicine there, and in the age to come, eternal life. Get off your self-pity. Oh, poor me, I left everything to follow you. Kick, you haven't made any sacrifices. Something like that. Now, how does that work then? Because I think self-pity is the flip side Another form of pride. Pride is, can be expressed in boasting in the strong or, oh, poor me, I'm so badly treated in the weak. This doesn't look proud. This looks proud. This is proud. You go home as a husband after a long day at work hoping that your wife will be a good mommy to you when you get home. 
express her admiration for your long, hard day without any reference to hers. And you walk in the room and she doesn't say anything. You want to check to see if the tire is flat? I think it went flat halfway through the day. Doesn't she know I worked hard all day? What, what is this mounting sense of, ooh? It's a sense of entitlement. It's a sense of desert. It's the form that pride takes in the heart of the wounded, in the heart of the weak. We usually think of pride the other way, that it's got the forms of strength and boasting, and I'm the best, and number one, Cassius Clay. Anybody remember him? Um, how do you kill that? How do you kill that? Well, Jesus said, your problem, Peter, when you said we've left everything and followed you, is that you don't understand that when you follow me, you get reward. Millions more than you give up. You get back. Which means that we won't be grumblers and self-pitying people in hard times if we're fully Christian hedonistic. Our hands will be lifted in the midst of our trials and our recession and our loss of job and our hardships. And we'll be saying, God, this is hard, but you are, you are everything. And you'll move through life blessing people instead of sucking on people's admiration and compliments and needing them because you are so sacrificial. When you take somebody out for dinner, let's say that you're a manager and you've got a team around you of five people and at the end of the year you're going to take them out for dinner and you take them to a very nice place costs you for five people maybe 300 bucks to take them out for dinner. And, uh, and they're amazed that you did this. And because it seems $300, well, you made a significant sacrifice to bless us. And they start complimenting you. Now, there's a little cultural device that is very common at that point, which has a parable in it. I'm not arguing that everybody who says it is spiritual. I'm arguing that when it is said, it points to a reality that is spiritual. What you say at that moment is, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. What, what do you do? The hands go up when you say that. It's my pleasure. What are the hands doing up? What does that mean? That means I've got this cascade of compliments coming to me, and I'm going up like this. Like, you're complimenting me as though I made some great sacrifice with my $300. And I'm telling you, I did what I wanted to do. It's my pleasure is a cultural device used to deflect praise and how does it deflect praise? It shows that people who are living out of the overflow of what they love to do because they're full of grace of God are not people to be pitied or complimented because of sacrifice. You don't need it. 
And so you deflect it. I really believe that deep and profound satisfaction in God is a great undermining of pride. Why would you boast that you went to China and died there if Christ was in China beckoning you to come and have fellowship with him for 30 years and be mightily used of God by grace? Why would you boast in that? Boasting must mean he's really not there and this really isn't all that rewarding and I don't think, I think I sold my soul. Got these words of David Livingston. I never made a sacrifice. Now that's not true technically, but that's his heart. He's coming to the end of years and years in Africa where he suffered greatly, finally died there on his knees. They found him, remember that story? Found him in his tent, bent over his cot, dead in the kneeling position. What a way to go. Like, Whoa, I hope my wife finds me that way someday. Or better in the pulpit. We just kind of go clunk like this. Kind of. <laughs> right, right, on the, right on the Bible. Oh. And, and, and the, the last words would be, I never made a sacrifice. Meaning, to walk with God through these hard days was so satisfying. Number 10. We're almost done with the arguments. What about self-denial, Piper? You're telling people to glut themselves on the pursuit of joy and... And this doesn't sound like Jesus when he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. And you're telling him to glut himself. Well, what is, how does that work? And, and when people ask me that question, I generally say, just keep reading, keep reading. Because he goes on to say, for... Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Hmm. How, now, how are you motivating me, Jesus? Do you want me to save my life or don't you want me to save my life? Because it looks like here, um, he who wishes to save his life is going to lose it. So you don't want me to save my life. And here you're telling me that if I lose my life for your sake in the Gospels, I will save it. So you're enticing me to save it. So what you want? And the answer, surely, is that this saving is worldly, isn't it? He who wishes to save his life will lose it means, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going there to serve Christ. I'm not going to do this witness. I'm not going to have this lifestyle. I'm going to save my prosperity, save my, my self from malaria and terrorists and being a nice, really secure, padlocked, 
house in a safe neighborhood. I think that's what he means there. If you, if you structure your life that way, you lose it. But when he says, if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, he doesn't mean go to hell. If you're willing to go to hell, you go to heaven. I don't think that's what he means. I think he means whoever loses his life for my sake means whoever loses mother, father, son, or daughter, whoever gives up a good job, whoever is willing to endure shame at the work when he identifies himself as a Christian, whoever, just whatever the things are that are costly in life, if you do them, you save it. And so he's enticing us with save, which is why C.S. Lewis said in that quote I read, yes, there's self-denial, but every time we're called to deny ourselves, they are accompanied with such promises and the promises have such reward that it's never denying yourself ultimate joy but temporary joy so the way i think of it well he said it's like a little child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he can't imagine what a holiday at the sea is whereas he ought to deny himself the pleasures i mean it really is fun to make mud pies in the slums you're a little kid little urban kid and you you can't you've never even seen pictures of a beach sandcastles and running in the water. You've never seen that? You can't even imagine it? This is fun. It's your best deal. But when you're shown this in the gospel, you should do self-denial here. This is self-denial. It's like saying, I'll deny myself brackish water to have pure water. I'll deny myself tin in order to have gold. I'll deny myself vinegar in order to have Honey, of course there's self-denial. You deny yourself all the stuff that keeps you from joy, keeps you from God. You deny yourself the broken cisterns that can hold no water in order to go back to the fountain of living water. I believe in self-denial big time. And sometimes it really hurts because there's enough of the old man in me that certain sexual pleasures are still clawing to be sought, right? or money, or fame, or whatever. We battle this to the very end. Yes, self-denial is real. But it's self-denial in the pursuit of total satisfaction forever. And so in that sense, it's not ultimate self-denial, which is what Ayn Rand, the atheist, never saw. She thought Christian... Life was total self-denial. Argument number 11. Suffering is required and sustained by the pursuit of joy in God. Suffering is not optional. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. He whom the Father does not discipline is an illegitimate child. Hebrews 12, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First, First Timothy, it's not optional. The question is, how can you stand it? What's the means by which we are enabled to walk through affliction, which is required by the Lord? 
Blessed are those, this is Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So persecution is there, and he says you're blessed. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. <laughs> Amazing. Rejoice and be glad. So this is a command in the midst of persecution and in the midst of reviling to be glad. And then comes the argument. For your reward is great in heaven. Do you see what this does? It, some people say you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I suppose in one sense that's true. There is a kind of heavenly mindedness that might distract a person from being earthly good. But that's not what's happening here. This is a person who is so heavenly minded that he is empowered to receive persecution in the pursuit of love. You're walking in the path of love in a hard place, and people are not rewarding you for it. They're reviling you for it. How do you stay? How do you keep going? Answer, be heavenly minded. You're going to get an unbelievable reward. It's going to come back to you 10,000 fold. If there's no reward on the planet, there will be a reward in heaven. And if they take your life, to die is gain. Reward is on the other side. Now, that I think is the key to enduring suffering. Keeping our eyes on the prize. For the joy that was set before him... Jesus endured the cross. And I tell you, sometimes I get really bent out of shape here at certain ethicists who start to diminish the importance of reward in life because they say it is, it is functioning in the old way, in the old selfish way. Well, it would be if the reward were, I'll be puffed up someday and Jesus will go down and I'll go up and I'll be the king of the universe and I'll get every carnal desire that I ever got satisfied and Jesus will be useful to that private carnal fleshly end. His glory doesn't matter. My joy matters. If, if that's the way people are thinking, yeah. The pursuit of joy is going to mess up motivation. But if the reward is Christ, Father, I pray that they might see my glory, that the love with which you loved me might be in them and I in them, so that they have a Vesuvius of joyful admiration of me forever and ever. If that's the reward, it doesn't contaminate evil. I mean, it doesn't contaminate Love, And my main argument for that is, that's the way Jesus was motivated. For the, this is Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You've got a cross to endure. How are you going to do it? Do it the way Jesus did it. For the joy that is set before you. You got a bad marriage? There's a lot of hard marriages. Solution number one, divorce. Solution number two, heaven. 
spend 30 years returning good for evil, and then go to heaven. The reason so many people get divorces is because they don't believe in heaven. They think heaven should come now. I should have a better wife, husband. This is not what I married for. I didn't marry to get this. This is supposed to be more heaven-like, and it's hell-like. Well, that's the hand some are dealt. A hellish marriage. In order to give you an opportunity to show the superior value of heaven. That's what it says. When they revile you and persecute you or are a totally inadequate husband or wife, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What do you think salt and light refer to here? i just sum up before we take a break. I'll sum up what I think it is. You're the salt, you Christians. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. What's the shining? What, what are people seeing? What are they tasting? I think they're tasting this. They watch you undergo very difficult circumstances. Some kind of reviling, some kind of persecution, some kind of ordinary natural calamity. They're watching you. And if you're able to rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, you're going to be a very salty person. You're going to taste like nothing in their experience. You're going to shine with such brightness against the dark backdrop of these troubles that they will be able to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think the light and the salt are the tanginess of people who don't grumble, instead rejoice in the midst of hardship. And I don't put myself up as a very good example of it. I want to be that. Oh, how I want to be that. I want to be that more than I want to be almost anything. That when things go the worst possible, my joy is undaunted. That's what I want. Because the world's going to look at that, and they're going to say, that tastes different. <laughs> that, that is attractive. Salt is attractive. That's why we put it on our potatoes and french fries and steak. Because it attracts us to them. It tastes a lot more of that. And light, I'm drawn to this. So, um, I think Christian hedonism is true because the Bible presents the pursuit of joy in God, in heaven, as the means by which we are enabled to endure necessary suffering. And the last argument is the duty of serving God is sustained by joy of being served by God. In my own words, in one minute, somebody might say to me, you know, this, this motif you've developed of pursuing your own joy just doesn't sound like service. We're, we're supposed to be servants and serve God. And I just put these texts here 
Let's see. Let's just use First Peter because it's the one I use most often just before I preach. Whoever speaks is to do it as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving in the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, what is service? All right, I'm downstairs in the prayer room. I'm going to preach in 15 minutes. Well, no, it's just 45 minutes, given the singing time. But shortly, I'll be up there, or I'm sitting in the pew, about to stand up to preach. I'm going to serve the people. I'm going to serve God for 45 minutes in preaching. What is what is that? He says, "Let those who serve do so." By the strength which God supplies. So who's the giver when I'm serving? God. He wouldn't have it any other way. Why? Because so that in all things he may be glorified. The giver gets the glory. If I try to reverse roles with him here, I'm going to serve you. You need me. You need this sermon to be preached. You can't get these people saved any other way. You can't sustain this church. You need me. You receive. Who gets the glory then? I do. But if I'm just an empty, needy little kid, still nervous from 50 years ago. Walking into a pulpit, saying, "God, I can't do anything good for these people unless you show up. I can't talk. I can't think. I'm going to lose my place. I'm going to lose my memory. I'm going to lose my attitude. I'm going to ruin these people. I will be unfaithful to your word unless you come." And I bank on Him entirely. Then my service becomes a receiving of grace and a glorifying. Of God, so I, I think my pursuit of receiving satisfaction in power from God is the key to my serving God.